Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Living Stones. I'm your co-host, Ken Hellenius. Deacon Harold has been off on pilgrimage of late, and so we thought we'd bring you kind of something out of the ordinary. And what I'm going to do tonight is share with you the beautiful apostolic constitution of Pope Pius XII, which defined the dogma of the Assumption of Our Lady. So this was written by the Holy Father, Pius XII, and released on November 1st, 1950. And the name of the apostolic constitution is Munificentissimus Deus, the Most Bountiful God. And that's what I'm going to bring you tonight here on Living Stones in this most glorious month of August as we celebrate Our Lady's Assumption and Queenship of Our Lady. So let us begin. The most bountiful God, who is almighty, the plan of whose providence rests upon wisdom and love, tempers in the secret purpose of his own mind the sorrows of peoples and of individual men by means of joys that he interposes in their lives from time to time, in such a way that, under different conditions and in different ways, all things may work together unto good for those who love him. Now, just like the present age, Our pontificate is weighed down by ever so many cares, anxieties, and troubles by reason of very severe calamities that have taken place, and by reason of the fact that many have strayed away from truth and virtue. Nevertheless, we are greatly consoled to see that, while the Catholic faith is being professed publicly and vigorously, piety toward the Virgin Mother of God is flourishing and daily growing more fervent, and that almost everywhere on earth it is showing indications of a better and holier life. Thus, while the Blessed Virgin is fulfilling in the most affectionate manner her maternal duties on behalf of those redeemed by the blood of Christ, the minds and the hearts of her children are being vigorously aroused to a more assiduous consideration of her prerogatives. Actually, God, who from all eternity regards Mary with a most favorable and unique affection, has, when the fullness of time came, put the plan of his providence into effect, in such a way that all the privileges and prerogatives he had granted to her in his sovereign generosity were to shine forth in her in a kind of perfect harmony. And although the Church has always recognized this supreme generosity and the perfect harmony of graces, and has daily studied them more and more throughout the course of the centuries, still it is in our own age that the privilege of the bodily assumption of into heaven of Mary, the Virgin Mother of God, has certainly shone forth more clearly. That privilege has shone forth in a new radiance, since our predecessor of immortal memory, Pius IX, solemnly proclaimed the dogma of the loving mother of God's immaculate conception. These two privileges are most closely bound to one another. Christ overcame sin and death by his own death, and one who through baptism has been born again in a supernatural way has conquered sin and death through the same Christ. Yet, according to the general rule, God does not will to grant to the just the full effect of the victory over death until the end of time has come. And so it is that the bodies of even the just are corrupted after death, and only on the last day will they be joined each to its own glorious soul. Now, God has willed that the Blessed Virgin Mary should be exempted from this general rule. 
She, by an entirely unique privilege, completely overcame sin by her immaculate conception, and as a result, she was not subject to the law of remaining in the corruption of the grave, and she did not have to wait until the end of time for the redemption of her body. Thus, when it was solemnly proclaimed that Mary, the virgin mother of God, was from the very beginning free from the taint of original sin, the minds of the faithful were filled with a stronger hope that the day might soon come when the dogma of the Virgin Mary's bodily assumption into heaven would also be defined by the Church's supreme teaching authority. Actually, it was seen that not only individual Catholics, but also those who could speak for nations or ecclesiastical provinces, and even a considerable number of the fathers of the Vatican Council, urgently petitioned the Apostolic See to this effect. During the course of time, such postulations and petitions did not decrease, but rather grew continually in number and in urgency. In this cause, there were pious crusades of prayer. Many outstanding theologians eagerly and zealously carried out investigations on this subject, either privately or in public ecclesiastical institutions and in other schools where the sacred disciplines are taught. Marian congresses, both national and international in scope, have been held in many parts of the Catholic world. These studies and investigations have brought out into even clearer light the fact that the dogma of the Virgin Mary's assumption into heaven is contained in the deposit of Christian faith entrusted to the Church. They have resulted in many more petitions, begging and urging the Apostolic See that this truth be solemnly defined. In this pious striving, the faithful have been associated in a wonderful way with their own holy bishops, who have sent petitions of this kind, truly remarkable in number, to this See of the Blessed Peter. Consequently, when we were elevated to the throne of the Supreme Pontificate, petitions of this sort had already been addressed by the thousands, from every part of the world and from every class of people, from our beloved sons, the Cardinals of the Sacred College, from our venerable brethren, archbishops and bishops, from dioceses and from parishes. Consequently, while we sent up earnest prayers to God that he might grant to our mind the light of the Holy Spirit to enable us to make a decision on this most serious subject— we issued special orders in which we commanded that by corporate effort, more advanced inquiries into this matter should be begun, and that, in the meantime, all the petitions about the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary into Heaven, which had been sent to this apostolic see from the time of Pius IX, our predecessor of happy memory, down to our own days, should be gathered together and carefully evaluated. And, since we were dealing with a matter of such great moment and of such importance, we considered it opportune to ask all our venerable brethren in the episcopate directly and authoritatively that each of them should make known to us his mind in a formal statement. Hence, on May 1st, 1946, we gave them our letter De Pere Virginis Mariae, a letter in which these words are contained, quote, do you, venerable brethren, in your outstanding wisdom and prudence, judge that the bodily assumption of the Blessed Virgin can be proposed and defined as a dogma of faith? Do you, with your clergy and people, desire it? End quote. But those whom the Holy Spirit has placed as bishops to rule the Church of God gave an almost unanimous affirmative response to both these questions. This outstanding agreement of the Catholic prelates and the faithful, affirming that the bodily assumption of God's mother into heaven can be defined as a dogma of faith, since it shows us the concordant teaching of the Church's ordinary doctrinal authority and the concordant faith of the Christian people, which the same doctrinal authority sustains and directs. 
thus, by itself and in an entirely certain and infallible way, manifests this privilege as a truth revealed by God and contained in that divine deposit which Christ has delivered to his spouse to be guarded faithfully and to be taught infallibly. Certainly, this teaching authority of the Church, not by any merely human effort, but under the protection of the Spirit of Truth, and therefore absolutely without error, carries out the commission entrusted to it, that of preserving the revealed truths pure and entire throughout every age, in such a way that it presents them undefiled, adding nothing to them and taking nothing from them. For, as the Vatican Council teaches, quote, the Holy Spirit was not promised to the successors of Peter in such a way that, by his revelation, they might manifest new doctrine, but so that, by his assistance, they might guard as sacred and might faithfully propose the revelation delivered through the apostles or the deposit of faith, end quote. Thus, from the universal agreement of the Church's ordinary teaching authority, we have a certain and firm proof, demonstrating that the Blessed Virgin Mary's bodily assumption into heaven, which surely no faculty of the human mind could know by its own natural powers, as far as the heavenly glorification of the virginal body of the loving Mother of God is concerned, is a truth that has been revealed by God, and consequently something that must be firmly and faithfully believed by all children of the Church. For, as the Vatican Council asserts, quote, All those things are to be believed by divine and Catholic faith which are contained in the written word of God or in tradition, and which are proposed by the Church either in solemn judgment or in its ordinary and universal teaching office, as divinely revealed truths which must be believed. Various testimonies, indications, and signs of this common belief of the Church are evident from remote times down through the course of the centuries, and this same belief becomes more clearly manifest from day to day. Christ's faithful, through the teaching and the leadership of their pastors, have learned from the sacred books that the Virgin Mary, throughout the course of her earthly pilgrimage, led a life troubled by cares, hardships, and sorrows, and that, moreover, what the holy old man Simeon had foretold actually came to pass, that is, that a terribly sharp sword pierced her heart as she stood under the cross of her divine Son, our Redeemer. In the same way, it was not difficult for them to admit that the great Mother of God, like her only begotten Son, had actually passed from this life. But this in no way prevented them from believing and from professing openly that her sacred body had never been subject to the corruption of the tomb, and that the august tabernacle of the divine word had never been reduced to dust and ashes. Actually, enlightened by divine grace and moved by affection for her, God's mother and our own dearest mother, they have contemplated in an ever clearer light the wonderful harmony and order of those privileges which the most provident God has lavished upon this loving associate of our Redeemer, privileges which reach such an exalted plane that, except for her, nothing created by God other than the human nature of Jesus Christ has ever reached this level. The innumerable temples which have been dedicated to the Virgin Mary assumed into heaven clearly attest this faith. So do those sacred images, exposed therein for the veneration of the faithful, which bring this unique triumph of the Blessed Virgin before the eyes of all men. Moreover, cities, dioceses, and individual regions have been placed under the special patronage and guardianship of the Virgin Mother of God assumed into heaven. In the same way, religious institutes, with the approval of the Church, have been founded and have taken their name from this privilege. 
Nor can we pass over in silence the fact that in the Rosary of Mary, the recitation of which this apostolic see so urgently recommends, there is one mystery proposed for pious meditation which, as all know, deals with the Blessed Virgin's assumption into heaven. This belief of the sacred pastors and of Christ's faithful is universally manifested still more splendidly by the fact that since ancient times there have been both in the East and in the West solemn liturgical offices commemorating this privilege. The Holy Fathers and Doctors of the Church have never failed to draw enlightenment from this fact, since, as everyone knows, the sacred liturgy, quote, because it is the profession, subject to the supreme teaching authority within the Church, of heavenly truths, can supply proofs and testimonies of no small value for deciding a particular point of Christian doctrine, end quote. In the liturgical books, which deal with the feast, either of the Dormition or of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin, there are expressions that agree in testifying that when the Virgin Mother of God passed from this earthly exile to heaven, what happened to her sacred body was, by the decree of divine providence, in keeping with the dignity of the Mother of the Word incarnate, and with the other privileges she had been accorded. Thus, to cite an illustrious example, this is set forth in that sacramentary which Adrian I, our predecessor of immortal memory, sent to the Emperor Charlemagne. These words are found in this volume. Quote, Venerable to us, O Lord, is the festivity of this day, on which the Holy Mother of God suffered temporal death, but still could not be kept down by the bonds of death, who has begotten your Son, our Lord, incarnate from herself. End quote. What is here indicated in that sobriety characteristic of the Roman liturgy is presented more clearly and completely in other ancient liturgical books. To take one as an example, the Gallican sacramentary designates this privilege of Mary's as, quote, an ineffable mystery, all the more worthy of praise as the Virgin's assumption is something unique among men, end quote. And in the Byzantine liturgy, not only is the Virgin Mary's bodily assumption connected time and time again with the dignity of the Mother of God, but also with the other privileges, and in particular with the virginal motherhood granted her by a singular decree of God's providence. Quote, God, the King of the universe, has granted you favors that surpass nature. As he kept you a virgin in childbirth, thus has he kept your body incorrupt in the tomb, and has glorified it by his divine act of transferring it from the tomb. End quote. The fact that the apostolic see, which has inherited the function entrusted to the Prince of the Apostles, the function of confirming the brethren in the faith, has by its own authority made the celebration of this feast ever more solemn, has certainly and effectively moved the attentive minds of the faithful to appreciate always more completely the magnitude of the mystery it commemorates. So it was that the Feast of the Assumption was elevated from the rank which it had occupied from the beginning, among the other Marian feasts, to be classed among the more solemn celebrations of the entire liturgical cycle. And, when our predecessor, St. Sergius I, prescribed what is known as the Litany, or the Stational Procession, to be held on four Marian feasts, he specified together the Feasts of the Nativity, the Annunciation, the Purification, and the Dormition of the Virgin Mary. Again, St. Leo IV saw to it that the feast which was already being celebrated under the title of the Assumption of the Blessed Mother of God should be observed in even a more solemn way, when he ordered a vigil to be held on the day before it, and prescribed prayers to be recited after it until the octave day. When this had been done, he decided to take part himself in the celebration, in the midst of a great multitude of the faithful. Moreover, 
The fact that a holy fast had been ordered from ancient times for the day prior to the feast is made very evident by what our predecessor St. Nicholas I testifies in treating of the principal fasts which, quote, the Holy Roman Church has observed for a long time and still observes. However, since the liturgy of the Church does not engender the Catholic faith, but rather springs from it, in such a way that the practices of the sacred worship proceed from the faith as the fruit comes from the tree, it follows that the Holy Fathers and the Great Doctors, in the homilies and sermons they gave the people on this feast day, did not draw their teaching from the feast itself as from a primary source, but rather they spoke of this doctrine as something already known and accepted by Christ's faithful. They presented it more clearly. They offered more profound explanations of its meaning and nature, bringing out into sharper light the fact that this feast shows not only that the dead body of the Blessed Virgin Mary remained incorrupt, but that she gained a triumph out of death. Her heavenly glorification, after the example of her only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, truths that the liturgical books had frequently touched upon concisely and briefly. Thus, St. John Damascene, an outstanding herald of this traditional truth, spoke out with powerful eloquence when he compared the bodily assumption of the loving Mother of God with her other prerogatives and privileges. Quote, It was fitting that she, who had kept her virginity intact in childbirth, should keep her own body free from all corruption even after death. It was fitting that she, who had carried the Creator as a child at her breast, should dwell in the divine tabernacles. It was fitting that the spouse whom the Father had taken to himself should live in the divine mansions. It was fitting that she, who had seen her son upon the cross, and who had thereby received into her heart the sword of sorrow which she had escaped in the act of giving birth to him, should look upon him as he sits with the Father. It was fitting that God's mother should possess what belongs to her son, and that she should be honored by every creature as the mother and as the handmaid of God." These words of St. John Damascene agree perfectly with what others have taught on this same subject. Statements no less clear and accurate are to be found in sermons delivered by fathers of an earlier time or of the same period, particularly on the occasion of this feast. And so, to cite some other examples, St. Germanus of Constantinople considered the fact that the body of Mary, the Virgin Mother of God, was incorrupt and had been taken up into heaven to be in keeping not only with her divine motherhood, but also with the special holiness of her virginal body. Quote, You are she who, as it is written, appears in beauty, and your virginal body is all holy, all chaste, entirely the dwelling place of God, so that it is henceforth completely exempt from dissolution into dust. Though still human, it is changed into the heavenly life of incorruptibility, truly living and glorious, undamaged and sharing in perfect light. End quote. And another very ancient writer asserts, quote, as the most glorious mother of Christ our Savior and God, and the giver of life and immortality, has been endowed with life by him, she has received an eternal incorruptibility of the body, together with him, who has raised her up from the tomb and has taken her up to himself in a way known only to him. End quote. When this liturgical feast was being celebrated ever more widely and with ever-increasing devotion and piety, the bishops of the church and its preachers, in continually greater numbers, considered it their duty openly and clearly to explain the mystery that the feast commemorates, and to explain how it is intimately connected with the other revealed truths. 
Among the scholastic theologians, there have not been lacking those who, wishing to inquire more profoundly into divinely revealed truths and desirous of showing the harmony that exists between what is termed the theological demonstration and the Catholic faith, have always considered it worthy of note that this privilege of the Virgin Mary's assumption is in wonderful accord with those divine truths given us in Holy Scripture. When they go on to explain this point, they adduce various proofs to throw light on this privilege of Mary. As the first element of these demonstrations, they insist upon the fact that, out of filial love for his mother, Jesus Christ has willed that she be assumed into heaven. They base the strength of their proofs on the incomparable dignity of her divine motherhood, and of all those prerogatives which follow from it. These include her exalted holiness, entirely surpassing the sanctity of all men and of the angels, the intimate union of Mary with her son, and the affection of preeminent love which the Son has for his most worthy mother. Often there are theologians and preachers who, following in the footsteps of the Holy Fathers, have been rather free in their use of events and expressions taken from sacred scripture to explain their belief in the Assumption. Thus, to mention only a few of the texts, rather frequently cited in this fashion, some have employed the words of the psalmist, quote, Arise, O Lord, into your resting place, you and the ark which you have sanctified, end quote and have looked upon the Ark of the Covenant, built of incorruptible wood and placed in the Lord's temple, as a type of the most pure body of the Virgin Mary, preserved and exempt from all the corruption of the tomb, and raised up to such glory in heaven. Treating of this subject, they also describe her as the queen entering triumphantly into the royal halls of heaven, and sitting at the right hand of the divine Redeemer. Likewise, they mention the spouse of the canticles, quote, that goes up by the desert as a pillar of smoke of aromatical spices, of myrrh and frankincense, quote, to be crowned. These are proposed as depicting that heavenly queen and heavenly spouse who has been lifted up to the courts of heaven with the divine bridegroom. Moreover, the scholastic doctors have recognized the assumption of the Virgin Mother of God as something signified not only in various figures of the Old Testament, but also in that woman clothed with the sun, whom John the Apostle contemplated on the island of Patmos. Similarly, they have given special attention to these words of the New Testament, quote, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, end quote. Since they saw, in the mystery of the Assumption, the fulfillment of that most perfect grace granted to the Blessed Virgin and the special blessing that countered the curse of Eve. Thus, during the earliest period of scholastic theology, that most pious man Amadeus, bishop of Lausanne, held that the Virgin Mary's flesh had remained incorrupt, for it is wrong to believe that her body has seen corruption, because it was really united again to her soul, and, together with it, crowned with great glory in the heavenly courts. Quote, for she was full of grace and blessed among women. She alone merited to conceive true God of true God, whom as a virgin she brought forth, to whom as a virgin she gave milk, fondling him in her lap, and in all things she waited upon him with loving care. End quote. Among the holy writers who at the time employed statements and various images and analogies of sacred scripture to illustrate and to confirm the doctrine of the Assumption, which was piously believed, the evangelical doctor, St. Anthony of Padua, holds a special place. On the feast day of the Assumption, while explaining the prophet's words, quote, I will glorify the place of my feet, quote, he stated it as certain that the divine Redeemer had bedecked with supreme glory his most beloved mother, from whom he had received human flesh. He asserts, quote, 
that you have here a clear statement that the Blessed Virgin has been assumed in her body, where was the place of the Lord's feet. Hence it is that the holy psalmist writes, Arise, O Lord, into your resting place, you and the ark which you have sanctified. And he asserts that just as Jesus Christ has risen from the death over which he triumphed, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father, so likewise the ark of his sanctification has risen up, since on this day the Virgin Mother has been taken up to her heavenly dwelling. End quote. When, during the Middle Ages, scholastic theology was especially flourishing, St. Albert the Great, who, to establish this teaching, had gathered together many proofs from sacred scripture, from the statements of older writers, and finally, from the liturgy and from what is known as theological reasoning, concluded in this way, quote, From these proofs and authorities, and from many others, it is manifest that the most blessed mother of God has been assumed above the choirs of angels, and this we believe in every way to be true, end quote. And, in a sermon which he delivered on the sacred day of the Blessed Virgin Mary's Annunciation, explained the words, Hail full of grace, words used by the angel who addressed her, the universal doctor, comparing the Blessed Virgin with Eve, stated clearly and incisively that she was exempted from the fourfold curse that had been laid upon Eve. Following the footsteps of his distinguished teacher, the angelic doctor, narrators note, this is St. Thomas Aquinas of whom he's speaking now, Despite the fact that he never dealt directly with this question, nevertheless, whenever he touched upon it, always held together with the Catholic Church that Mary's body had been assumed into heaven along with her soul. Along with many others, the seraphic doctor held the same views. Narrators note this is now St. Bonaventure. He considered it as entirely certain that as God had preserved the Most Holy Virgin Mary from the violation of her virginal purity and integrity in conceiving and in childbirth, he would never have permitted her body to have been resolved into dust and ashes. Explaining these words of sacred scripture, quote, Who is this that comes up from the desert, flowing with delights, leaning upon her beloved? End quote and applying them in a kind of accommodated sense to the Blessed Virgin, he reasons thus, quote, From this we can see that she is there bodily. Her blessedness would not have been complete unless she were there as a person. The soul is not a person, but the soul joined to the body is a person. It is manifest that she is there in soul and in body. Otherwise, she would not possess her complete beatitude, end quote. And with that, we're going to wrap up for tonight here on Living Stones. That's paragraph 32 of Munificentissimus Deus by Pius XII. When we gather next week, we'll actually finish the rest of this beautiful apostolic constitution, which kind of continues to look at the history of the teaching of the Assumption and then solemnly defines it in the fullness of his apostolic authority as the uh, supreme pontiff issuing an infallible statement of faith, a dogma. When we gather next week, uh, as I say, we'll finish this uh, document. And then after that, Deacon Harold will be back. And so we'll be back together with and continue our series on the Holy Spirit. Until we do that, we invite you to download previous episodes of the show at materdeiradio.com and connect with us on Facebook. Just type in Living Stones Media. But we'll see you next week here on Living Stones. Until then, may the Blessed Virgin Mary intercede for you and for your family. God bless. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M A T E R D E I radio.com.